As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Hello and welcome to Matters of Life and Death. I'm Tim Wyatt and in today's episode we're taking a sideways step away from the Covid pandemic and instead are going to be discussing social media and free speech. The banning of Donald Trump from almost every social media platform following the deadly riot earlier this month at the US Capitol building has prompted some fierce debates not only about free speech and censorship online but also the role of social media in fostering hate and lies. Why is it that so much horrendous stuff accumulates and then spills out of social media, from deranged conspiracy theories about coronavirus all the way up to the violent and often racist political rhetoric which inspired the capital insurrection? Do we need more regulation and moderation of what people are saying online, or do we need less? What are the implications of unaccountable tech CEOs barring anyone they choose from the world's dominant communications networks? And how should we as Christians think about the ethics of free speech and censorship in our always online 21st century world? Well, welcome back, John. Thanks for joining us again for uh, another episode of Matters of Life and Death. Um, today, we wanted to, to follow on from our last episode, which tackled conspiracy theories and, and misinformation around the coronavirus pandemic and actually broaden that conversation out to talk about social media and, and free speech and, uh, and how social media affects the way that we talk and communicate with each other in a more broader sense, not just looking at, at coronavirus. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, fan- fantastically interesting and um, rapidly changing scene, isn't it? But I, I'm I'm very struck in particular by what's been happening in the states with uh, Donald Trump being banned from uh, apparently banned for life from both Facebook and Twitter, and also what's been happening with the social uh, media platform Parler. So uh, you as a journalist must be uh, watching events with interest. Definitely, yeah, definitely. I think um, it's really it's been a really momentous few weeks, really, hasn't it, since that uh, infamous insurrection at the, the US Capitol. Um, as you say, uh, there's been some really significant changes, and I think it's worth dwelling on just sketching out some of the context where we are. So as you say, Trump has been banned both uh, permanently, we think, suspended from both Facebook and Twitter, um 
Twitter said they it was because they said Trump's tweets uh, glorified violence in their words and were likely to inspire people to repeat the the riot at the Capitol. And Facebook said something similar, which is why they were kicking them off their platforms, kicking him off their platforms for good. Um, what I think is really interesting is being observing as a reporter over the last four years how both sites have really struggled with what to do with with Trump um, when he first became a candidate. Uh, before he was elected and started kind of bursting into the public consciousness with a lot of very extreme and outrageous claims uh there were lots of calls then that you know these these break the, the social media platforms rules and should they ban him but in the end both came up with a different solution which was to create a kind of uh exemption to the normal rules on on hate speech or inciting violence which was that if you're a public figure or you're particularly newsworthy like a candidate for president uh, they will bend the rules and allow you to kind of t- toe the line a bit more because of the importance in seeing what that person has to say. But clearly they now both companies have decided uh, allegedly inciting a, an insurrection against the US government and transfer of power is a, is a step too far and have, have pulled them off the platforms entirely. Yeah, so so it's interesting, isn't it, that, that um, these uh, individuals uh, who are running commercial enterprises you know mark zuckerberg and jack dorsey are are suddenly in extraordinarily powerful uh, positions in, in terms of how communication is going on in our society and, and arguably they're they're in a more powerful position than the federal government for instance in 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 the us and and, and i think they've they have recognized this haven't they and, and tried to set up um uh ethics committees or um different kinds of uh of uh committees within within the organizations but ultimately it does come down to the decision of the of the chief executive that's right yeah and so in particular facebook has been experimenting with this what they call i think it's an oversight council or something like that which is a in kind of it's been described as a supreme court of facebook which is just a, they've they've hired and given an endowment so it's funded independently in perpetuity a group of kind of worthy scholars journalists academics public policy figures who are supposed to kind of make rulings on these kind of free speech issues for facebook not on individual cases but they're hoping that kind of like the broad principles will bubble up and they'll and this oversight body will will kind of determine what is and isn't allowed on facebook's platforms but in truth uh, particularly with Facebook, because it's uh, Mark Zuckerberg has a kind of controlling stake in it, more than fifty percent of the voting power in the company. It's really ultimately his decision and his decision alone, which is a slightly astonishing thought that this man in his mid thirties uh, is has the power to to control whether someone has access to the world's most used communication platform. And so, how do you feel as a professional journalist about Trump being banned for life? Is is that something you rejoice over? <laughs> I mean, just not think about the party politics, but just in terms of the um, the the effect on 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 free speech. Hmm. It's a really good question. It's something actually I think I and as a lot of other journalists in particular who also have a critical interest in free speech have really been conflicted over. Um, I think I probably agreed with their position that there should be a kind of newsworthiness exception, you know, and and. I think it's it's probably right to hold public figures like presidents um, and other very significant political leaders, allow them to stay on the platform because the public interest in knowing what they're tweeting and saying is enormous. 
But at the same time, I, I think I also think there can't be completely untrammeled uh, ability to say what well, absolutely whatever they want and break all of Twitter's or Facebook's existing and well-established rules on incitement to violence and, and that kind of thing. Whether what Trump has said on Twitter crossed the line, I think it's a murky, blurry issue. And I, I have to be honest, the cynic in me says they were banned at this point, not because he suddenly broke the rules in a way that he hadn't broken them before, but because the, the social media companies were suddenly confronted with the reality and, the, and the, the consequences of him breaking the rules. I think he's probably not said anything more egregious in January than he said for the last four years, but it's suddenly that his comments appear to be having real world and dramatic and drastic consequences. Yes, and it it does seem very drastic to ban someone for life. I mean, one could see how one can temporarily temporarily suspend someone if it's felt that they've crossed a line. Uh, but uh, given the the reach and the power of these uh, platforms, Facebook and Twitter, uh, I, I suspect that a lifetime ban is just very hard to defend. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that view. I think I have even more concerns about when uh, web hosting services like Amazon um, or the e-commerce hosting site Shopify, who have done similar things, but rather than just banning the Trump account, Amazon Web Services has completely removed its hosting of this kind of right-wing Twitter alternative app called Parler, which is very popular with a lot of Trump supporters. That They haven't just banned individual accounts, they've literally wiped that in, that, that entire network off the internet because it was it, the whole network was being hosted on Amazon servers. And likewise, uh, Shopify, which is this very large, a powerful kind of back-end for e-commerce, has taken down every single online store that the Trump organization or the Trump campaign was running, selling its merchandise. Those, I think, are concerning because uh, they kind of expose, I guess, the way in which the pipes of the internet, the back-end, is actually, again, concentrated in the hands of a tiny handful of companies who have zero public accountability. And so, you know, they could not just take away one individual's ability to tweet or post on the internet, but they could take away an entire website or an entire business overnight without any accountability. Yes, and I think uh, many people are unaware about of this, uh, of what Amazon are doing. I mean, we were all aware of Amazon as an online shopping uh, website, but... Um, in fact, Amazon runs a very significant uh, percentage uh, behind the scenes of, as you call it, the piping that run, keeps the, the internet running, and particularly cloud computing. And um, and I think it's true to say that a large percentage of their profits come from that uh, business rather than from the online shopping that we all know. And uh, But that does give um, Amazon an extraordinary power in terms of deciding uh, who can use this the piping and and being able to shut off um, whole whole platforms and, and services yeah that's right I think the flip side going back to the Twitter and Facebook issue is is that it's hard to claim that that Trump has has really been silenced or had his free speech rights infringed you know he still for the for the next few days at least you know controls the White House press operation and can put out press releases and they will be reported on by every newspaper in the world. Um, these are ultimately private firms, Twitter and Facebook, 
um, who have a right to deny access to their services to anyone for any reason in the same way that if you or I were running a business, we could choose not to sell our products to someone and we don't have to have a good reason behind that as long as it's not discriminatory along certain kind of protected characteristics. So I, I, I don't know, I, I'm, I feel conflicted. I feel as a journalist, yes, I should uphold kind of a, a very broad understanding of free speech. But at the same time, I think there is signs that some of what Trump was putting out can be directly linked to you know people lives being killed you know police officers died in the capital and are their lives worth less than trump's ability to kind of trumpet out misinformation and and spread untruths i'm not sure yes now i think behind this is there is quite a technical point about whether the internet uh, the social media platforms should be regarded as publishing or broadcasting companies where there is a legal editorial uh, responsibility for whatever is communicated. Uh, They've argued very strongly that they're not broadcasting or publishing companies. They are simply platforms. Uh, But I think that is increasingly hard to to maintain. And and I would therefore be in favour of of the same kind of regulatory framework which we've accepted, uh, particularly for broadcast uh, media, where you have a an independent regulatory authority which is a kind of arm's length from the political uh, government but which is has a legal responsibility to to regulate and oversee what broadcast uh, media do uh, and I, I would much prefer that rather than the responsibility being in the hands of people like Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point, And I actually entirely agree. I mean, the other comparison that's sometimes made is, is, you know, I talked about the pipes of the internet as a metaphor. But if you think about kind of monopolistic utility firms like water companies or electricity firms, who often um, will have a kind of complete control of all the infrastructure, you know, if you want to get water, where I live, you have to get it from Thames Water, there's no one else who will who is able or allowed to pipe water to my door. Um, and so with that, obviously, gives Thames Water enormous power. And so we have Offwat in this country, the Office for Water Regulation, who who set strict controls about how much Thames Water can charge and what their minimum service standards have to be and blah, blah, blah. I think there's a very compelling argument that a, a site like Facebook in particular, which dominates social media to such an extent that you know you can't there in many parts of the world you know you can't really engage in in the online digital world without going through facebook in some sense bear in mind they also own instagram whatsapp and a number of other smaller firms i think there's a good argument to say that they have now become equivalent of a kind of monopolistic utility firm and should attract a comparable level of kind of government regulation to make sure that their their policies have been you know enacted fairly and people aren't being discriminated or or um refuse service for without good reason yeah, uh, I, th- I think there is a sort of consensus developing there. It'd be interesting to see uh, how this develops over the next year or two, because certainly the events that have that have gone on with Trump and, and with the insurrection, so-called, I think will uh, has definitely focused a lot of people's minds on the on these very issues. I just want to, just stepping back a bit, just to uh, refer to two uh, scientific studies on how 
news uh, transmits across the internet, uh, which I've found very, very interesting and, and very relevant. Um, and the first is a study that was done at MIT, which was published in 2018 in in the um, journal Science, which is a very reputable international scientific journal. And um, we'll put the link uh, on the notes to this podcast, but uh, it's, uh, the PDF is available uh, for free. But um, briefly, they, they looked at true and false news stories uh, distributed on Twitter between 2006-2017, and the database comprised 126,000 stories uh, tweeted by 3 million people. And they used fact-checking fact organisations to to decide whether the news story was in fact true or false. And then they looked at how these stories had disseminated across Twitter. And, and what they showed is that the false stories went farther, faster, deeper and more broadly than the truth in all categories of information. And uh, we found that false news was more novel than true news which suggests that people were more likely to share novel information. And false stories inspired fear, disgust and surprise in replies, whereas true stories inspired anticipation, sadness, joy and trust. And so, interestingly, they, there's just very strong scientific evidence that, that false stories uh, disseminate much more uh, effectively and rapidly in fact, in their study, it suggested that the, they, the false stories disseminated six times more rapidly than the um, than the true stories. And um, I, I, I think this this is is a fascinating but deeply troubling aspect of of all social media. Um, and and I think uh, what's happening in the USA and what what has been happening uh, with Donald Trump is is an illustration of this. Um, this, the second paper is one just published very recently in Scientific American, uh, again from two professors, one in Indiana University, one in Warwick University in England. And uh, they showed how information overload helps uh, disinformation to spread. Um, and, and what they uh, pointed out is that is that when you're in a situation of information overload, you tend to go... Uh, fall back on what they call cognitive biases. We search for and remember things that fit well with what we already know and understand. And uh, in the current situation on social media, because there's so much information overload, this, this cognitive bias means that we tend to perpetuate uh, false stories. We, we, we go towards uh, the, the stories which which fit our biases. So, so in a way, again, it's a sort of scientific evidence of how the echo chamber works, but in particular how the echo chamber tends to encourage false stories. So, so the fascinating thing is that there, there does seem to be something fundamentally about the way that social media works in our world, which, which is, is extremely dangerous, and it's particularly dangerous for democracy and for the spread of truth. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I hadn't come across those studies, but they, as you say, they it certainly tallies with my own personal experience on Twitter in particular, which is that falsehoods can, you know, that the old saying, a, a truth has got, a lie has got half around the world before the truth has got its pants on. And that is 100% the case, you know, countless occasions I've seen tweets go viral and rocket around my own timeline and be endlessly retweeted. And then sometimes a day or two later, 
someone comes along, maybe the same person admits it was incorrect or it gets thoroughly debunked. And, and that, that debunking tweet gets, you know, less than 1% of the attention or the impact that the, that the first false one did. I think this really ties into a, gr- a growing sense that I've picked up from my kind of, in the kind of comms, media, journalism, tech world, which is that the idealism of social media is dead. And I think everyone across the, across the broad now accepts that social media is a, what we've created unintentionally is this very dangerous tool, a wonderful tool, but a very dangerous tool. And you've seen that with the with the stuff with, with Trump and, and the rise of things like QAnon and the other kind of conspiracy theories and violent in fringe kind of stuff associated with that. But also in the, in the, in the COVID pandemic, that so we've, we've created these, these black box algorithmic machines, which which have a way of um, spreading misinformation and 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 un and harmful speech, I would say, in a way that we've never seen before. And previously, the kind of journalistic response is, let's have a free marketplace of ideas, and the truth will win out. You know, if we just let everyone say their piece, people will gravitate towards what is true and what is good. And I think that argument no longer carries much water in a world where we, as you've just shown, science can prove that actually in a free marketplace of ideas online, what wins out is what is untrue. Yes, and that is deeply troubling, isn't it? And it's one of the very mysterious things about uh, social media which I have reflected long and hard on and and continue to do as as do many other people because you know there was great optimism as you say about uh, making information free uh, freely available um, and and of course the whole theory behind free speech um, goes back to the ideal of a of a liberal democracy where in the battle of ideas by by allowing all the ideas to be freely disseminated then the truth will overcome the the falsehood and and i think we're seeing as you say that that that, that doesn't seem to work in social media and then the question is why and i have a theory that at least I mean, I think there are many, many different things that, that cause this. And, and, and just one of the things is undoubtedly the way that the algorithms are uh, are tweaked. Um, and that's because of the commercialization of these platforms. These platforms are all about making money. And the way you do that is by attracting attention and interaction with the uh, with, with the platform. And the way you do that is, is that it turns out that the false news stories have much greater ability to attract attention uh, than the true news story so so if you change the algorithms uh so they operated in a different way um i then that's one i think of mitigating the the evil but i i think there's something else more profound and, and that is related to the disembodied nature of um of these social media platforms and indeed of the whole digital world um because the interesting thing is that our very embodiment as human beings in general limits the amount of evil that we can do you know that that if you and I have a terrible argument and I say something to you which is deeply hurtful well that memory stays with you 
and we'll stay with you for a long time. And, and you may go and, and talk to other people and say, do you know what my dad said to me? And that's that absolutely outrageous. And they say, yeah, that was terrible, Tim, and so on. But basically, the evil that I said to you is, is limited into a small network. It beca- and because our embodiment just prevents it from being spread very rapidly. Whereas once you have the digital media, you could put that onto Twitter this is what my dad said to me. And and literally millions of people could find that and retweet it and it could go around the world and reverberate on and come back and haunt me years later. And and there's something about the very disembodiment that allows evil to scale up. That's really interesting. But would you not say the same argument could apply for something like the invention of the printing press? or the invention of the book. I mean, these are also disembodied technologies that allow one person to reach a huge number that have existed for hundreds, if not thousands of years. Yes, and I, I think the process started, you're quite right, with, with, with the invention of writing, you know, the technology that allows a, a, an idea to be, uh, to be communicated to many thousands of people. Uh, and, and just as a as an aside, the fascinating thing about the biblical story and and the is that God Himself in the Old Testament uses this newfangled technology of writing as His means of disseminating the Torah. I mean, you know, the Torah is not spread by um, verbal to verbal communication, but uh, in Exodus, it is spread that it is written on tablets, you know, using this newfangled phonetic alphabet. So, so God Himself uses technology as a means of disseminating the truth. And of course, it's often been pointed out the invention of the printing press played a very significant role in the Reformation and the production of um, Bibles in the vernacular and so on. Um, but the social media takes that on to a whole new level, doesn't it? Um, it's one thing to be able to print a newspaper. And, of course, we do know that the, the lies and slanders in newspapers have done terrible damage in the past. But it's in a, a different league when it goes to billions of people within minutes. When, uh, as you say, the speed with which it, is, it can be disseminated and passed on uh, because of the, the, the extreme disembodiment of, of, of the Internet. And I guess there's something else about disembodiment, which is that when we are being cruel and vicious online, it's because it's reduced to text and maybe what a still image, it's easy to imagine that you're not being cruel and unkind and or, uh, vicious to some, to a real human being with flesh and blood who feels, it, you know, people, it's quite, I've read quite a few excellent pieces of journalism where people who have experienced kind of trolling have managed to track down their trolls and 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 sometimes they agree to meet in real life and it often it turns out the troll who has been maybe waging a campaign of vicious slander and hate and abuse to this person's kind of twitter profile for for years actually turns out to be a kind of mild-mannered mid-level accountant in slough who actually wouldn't say boo to a goose in person and when they meet their target they feel a bit ashamed but because they it was all online they were able to to, to kind of pretend to themselves they weren't actually attacking another human being who was just like them, who had emotions and feelings and, and dignity just like them. Exactly. And, and um, there's it's very interesting neuroscience showing that when, when you are having a face-to-face conversation 
with uh, with another human being, um, it, and and the other human being responds in a particular way. Actually, your brain mirrors the way that they're responding, um, it's, and and all this this happens quite unconsciously. You know that 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 we are wired in order to empathise and to and 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 again, you can see how that that acts to reduce the possibility of evil. And in, in order for me to be very cruel to someone face to face, I've got to override these naturally empathic uh, mechanisms. I've got to override my, my seeing the pain in your eyes and the way you flinch and, and so on. Now, of course, you know, we all know it's perfectly possible to do that. But as you say, it's much easier to be cruel and uh, offensive when you're simply banging away on, on a on a keyboard. When I was uh, working in the university as part of a research team and with a clinical team, I tried to make it a rule that um, we should never communicate really negative news by email. Uh, if there's something really negative or emotionally laden that I have to communicate, then it's much better to do it face to face. Or if I can't do it face to face, then I should pick up the phone and talk to someone on the phone. Um, and that way, um, you're much less likely to have the evil consequences of um, of just of, of hitting off an email, which is going to be picked up at any moment. the next question to ask then is like what does this mean for us particularly for us as christians and um, it's it's you know it's quite clear that a lot of this kind of cesspit of cruelty unkindness lies is is very much contrary to to the gospel you know there's full of the bible's full of stuff about encouraging us to think about whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is pure whatever is excellent and praiseworthy or don't let unwholesome talk come out of your mouths is the the answer therefore should Christians support a kind of sweeping regulation of social media to try and scrub the airwaves clear of this kind of filth? Well it's a big topic isn't it and we probably haven't got time now to talk about in detail and I think maybe it'd be good to come back to this on a future podcast but very briefly I think the first thing I'd want to say is is that I think interestingly Christians have always taken the concept of evil very seriously in a way that often other worldviews, other other understandings of reality don't. I mean, you know, if you are a uh, convinced atheist and, a, and a, an engineer, a technocrat, and you believe basically there's nothing in the universe except physics, then evil as a category really doesn't compute I mean, I mean, it doesn't—it doesn't mean anything ultimately. And 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 why would people be evil? Of course, you can understand that there was faulty programming. You can understand that random bad events happen, but the idea of personal malevolence doesn't compute in a entirely materialistic scientific worldview. Uh, whereas. I think within a Christian worldview, of course, the concept of the fall, that human beings, although wonderful and unique and precious, are also terribly contaminated by evil and that everything we do is contaminated by evil. Um, that's a deeply Christian idea. And, and therefore, 
I think from a Christian point of view, we're not at all surprised about this outpouring of evil, this reflection of what is actually in people's hearts. Um, this this is something which, which fits with our understanding of the world. And therefore, I think that um, Christians often have something to contribute in the public arena because we take evil seriously. We have a long history of trying to both understand the nature of evil and try ways of restricting and, and evil. Um, in, in that sense, Christianity doesn't have a naivety about what it means to be human. Um, but I think the second thing which which is interesting and again it compares with a with a, if if you take a, a, a purely scientific materialistic understanding of what it means to be human then you would say something like well human beings are you know computers made out of meat where we're, we're information processing systems where we there's nothing fundamentally uh different between the the human being and the advanced computer in many ways and and in particular there's no particular reason to value embodiment i mean you could argue from a a purely materialistic point of view that the disembodied nature of the internet and of the digital computers is 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 very much to be preferred compared with that horrible messy embodiment with all its weakness and its limitations and you know our processing powers of our messy brains are very inferior compared to the processing power of computers. So from a strictly materialistic point of view, it's not obvious that human embodiment is a good thing. Whereas, of course, from a Christian point of view, um, and, and this is perhaps a unique of all the thought forms and all the religions across the world, it's, it's Christianity which has the incarnation uh, at its heart, which which says that uh, human embodiment is something precious and significant, and and that God's plan for us is not to become less than embodied, um, and even in the new heaven and the new earth, it's a physical embodiment which is which is the Christian hope. So so I would want to argue that in some way the the orthodox Christian understanding of embodiment and incarnation is particularly relevant at this time now when when we're seeing the the dangers of the digital world definitely and i think while everyone could support efforts you know i think if clearly there's a conflict there isn't there between the the christian worldview and what you've just sketched out about embodiment and the presence of of innate evil in, in each in each of us and the kind of techno optimist quasi libertarian view that a lot of you know your Mark Zuckerbergs or your Jack Dorseys and or at least that Silicon Valley world they're swimming in holds to, which is this is a tech problem. We just need to like create the systems and then pe- let people go and people are basically good and we'll try and and we'll figure it out themselves. Um, I think there is an important point to be made here briefly, however, that actually you know free speech as a value, even when it permits people to say things that are contrary to kind of gospel values is still something that Christians can and probably should support. It may, it might be a liberal democratic value rather than a, a deeply biblical value, but I think there is really strong kind of secondary Christian arguments why we need to be cautious about uh, the power that people like Facebook and Twitter have to control and regulate speech online and also be cautious to resist calls from some, including maybe from some in the church, for a more kind of radical... Uh, clamp down on on some of the excesses of, of social media. 
Yeah, well, I'd agree with that. But I think there's a lot more that perhaps could be said. So I think that's a theme we'd like to come back uh, in a future podcast. Definitely. All right. Well, thanks very much, John. It's been a really great discussion. And I look forward to picking this up again uh, soon. That's it for this episode of Matters of Life and Death. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with friends or on social media. It can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other major podcast apps. As always, don't forget to check out John's website, which is a treasure trove of resources to read, listen to, and watch on lots of the things that we talk about in the podcast and much more besides. You can find it at johnwyatt.com. That's J-O-H-N-W-Y-A-T-T dot com. And if for some reason you'd even like to follow me online, I'm at T.S. Wyatt on Twitter. And for some of my journalism, head to tswyatt.com. You can get in touch with us by emailing mattersoflifeanddeathpodcast at gmail.com or just send me a tweet. We're always keen to hear from listeners, especially if you have a question to ask, a topic for us to explore, or a news development you think we should respond to. The music in the show is, as always, by Daniel Birch. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you again next time. <laughs>